hi, I'm Jack Brody, and welcome to Living at the 45 today. I'm honored and um, really privileged to be speaking with Barry Buss, a man I didn't know before, but I sure know him now through his book, a really fantastic read. Hello, everybody. And, um, you know, I've had an interesting run. I was just telling Barry, I've had an interesting run. Um, and the last couple of weeks, um, I talked to uh, Roscoe Tanner right. from that, uh, once again, older than both of us, but right, from right. that era. And I'm about to speak with Dick Gould in about an hour, hour and a half. And uh, it all brings me back, way back. Um, it, it was really heavy. And I, that's, that, that's why I wanted to get back to, Barry. I was just telling you... Um, we don't know each other personally, but I feel like I kind of know you because if you went through that time, uh, I was a ranked player, but nothing. Um, you know, I was one of the guys that you beat up on your way to the semis. Um, but, you know, it's 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 really like I said, it was such a weekend for me. I couldn't put your book down. Thank you. Um, you said in the beginning, I think you said something like if it helps one person, I've done my job. Well, you already did your job because it really um, it salvaged my funky strange weird bizarre weekend i had Thank by you. the way i'm a fellow deadhead too so i know okay. you are excellent and, um, i hope you got all the hippie illusions in my book there the i did i did i did <laughs> except for i was waiting to see if the thunder don't get you then the lightning will i was like when's he gonna use that line <laughs> I, I had i had a yeah one uh every time that wheel turns around it did cover a little more yeah. ground i was gonna steal that line there but i edited it out <laughs> I caught them all. I caught them all. Uh, awesome. First of all, yeah, that was one of my early questions, you know, and I saw West LA fade away and, sure. you know, you're talking to a guy that saw over a hundred shows himself. Perfect. Perfect. And I'm from the LA, you know, I, I was working with some guys at UCLA, um, John Paley in sure. particular. And uh, I guess Tony Graham almost had a similar uh, existence to you, except for, I don't remember him throwing tantrums. He was uh, he just, he let his racket do the talking, but boy, he was a good partier. Ooh, I remember. <laughs> I remember. I met him in 1978. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that guy owned LA when yeah, he was a senior. When he I was think, a senior, think, yeah. I think he still does, too. He kind of does. Uh, he's still, it's yeah. really funny. I, I guess you must be friends with him on Facebook. You see all the yeah. posts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's living large out there mastros and uh yeah yeah it's all good man he's, yeah he's, he's, he's getting his money's worth <laughs> yeah he is but listen we grew up you know living in the you know growing up out of the tennis boom and then ended up in la in the 70s and 80s it was a unique time to to come of age it was a you know the concentration of talent and just uh the energy around just not just junior tennis, professional tennis, college tennis, USC, Pepperdine, UCLA. Stanford. Yeah, it was just a, you know, that's when everybody went to play college tennis. It wasn't, you know, not too many kids were jumping straight to the pros. So everybody did a couple of years. And uh, well, and that was before the foreigners invasion, right? Now right. you can't even find an American at yeah, a college. You got All the scholarships. Look, not a lot of, you know, Jack Smiths out there, but they're, they're there. You got to just, you know, it, though I will, listen, it's just gotten, you know, the, I think when I was playing back then, the whole world hadn't quite started playing yet. So we, uh, you know, I think when the Olympics came in 84, I think that's when everybody, the world really caught it. Now every country's got, you know, numerous guys who can ball and, and they're all, you know, they're all eager and hungry. And, uh, you know, tennis has become the ticket for these guys. They don't have pro football and baseball and basketball. And, you know, it's either soccer or, or tennis. And these guys are just as athletic as we are. And uh, there's no, it's no wonder that they're, 
you know, they're having their accomplishments. Yeah. And yeah. And Roscoe a few weeks ago reminded me that when he first started, ain't no money in it. No. Yeah. And that changed in, in about the mid 70s, right around when Mac came in. That's when the money yeah. started coming in. Right. Yeah. Right after Battle of the Sexes. Battle of the Sexes. Like and then, you know, then you got Borg and then all the sponsorships, you know, those guys, you know, they became international superstars, you know, Connors in particular, you know, and then uh, on the girls side, you had Chris Everett and, you know, they were, they were, they were very marketable. And uh, I think, I think that's when sports, it's interesting, sports marketing, finally, that the marketing people finally realized sports was a great avenue to advertise through. So they started, you know, the Family Circle Cup and all the, you know, they started throwing a ton of money at tennis. And, uh, you know, we've had kind of a revolving cast of sponsors, whether it's Colgate or, or you know, now it's BNB Paribas, but there's always a major corporation behind, well, you know, underwriting a lot of the tennis stuff now. And that's, you know, it's been a while. And guys like McCormick, without you know, who started oh, IMG, sure. he sure. really helped a lot. And uh, what's his name? Uh, World Championship of Tennis, Lamar Hunt. Right. You know, and nobody knows these guys, but they really helped foster. Uh, there was a lot of it was big business. Yeah. No, no, it was. Uh, you know, and there's been a lot of growing pains through it, and uh, for every boom, there's been a bust, and you know, not everything panned out. World Team Tennis kind of came and went. There's a lot of you know a lot of attempts out there, but no shortage of uh, entrepreneurial you know, uh, energy out there. Even the USTA, they filed bankruptcy a few times in the last few decades. Yeah. It's, yeah. Well, I think they're doing okay now. <laughs> yeah. I think they're doing okay now. Yeah. I still think the U S open is their meal ticket. Yeah. No, we were, we were just there for the first couple of days. I've never seen it so busy and so active and I mean, it's, it's healthy. Plus after COVID everyone's jonesing, I guess, to get out. I think so, I think so too. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it was an interesting time. Like I said, it really brought up a ton of memories. I think one of the first things I wondered about, and you didn't mention it much in your book. And so, of course, I'm not going to ask direct questions about your book because people should just get out there and read it because um, the matches were fun to watch and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you have plenty more stories than are even in the book. Oh, I mean, yes. I have stories. I have stories <laughs> about my college tennis. I can't even tell. Right. Uh, yeah. By the way, I want to I want to compliment you on one thing. Um, you're fucking your brutal honesty. Jesus, man, I, I don't know if I have the huevos to be quite as honest as you. Yeah, a lot of it's just being in recovery. You know, I've been in recovery for a long time. And uh, if you're not you're not taking thorough and fearless moral inventories of yourself. And, and, and part of it's just, just kind of getting healthy. You know, a lot, you know, the book is a lot of things. It's it's a cautionary tale of what can happen if, if signs aren't missed. Uh, but it's also a book of hope, you know, there, there you can, you know, you can get yourself in some holes out there if you're not careful with substances or, or you know, undiagnosed mental health stuff that I had going on. Um, and, uh, but you can get there from here. You can, you can have the life that you always wish for, but, you know, you're not going to get there hiding and you got to, you got to own, you got to be accountable. You know, I, I have no shame for what I did. I did what I did. I wasn't a bad person. I was a sick person trying to navigate my way through a world uh, that was, wasn't really built well for me. You know, I was, I was having a little hard time figuring it out. And, you know, it wasn't until I was, you know, got a, finally really got sober this last time through that things are, things are well. And, you know, and I think part of, part of also there's a little stigmatization around mental health and substance abuse and everyone's a little reticent to talk about these things. And uh, so I, you know, I kind of, Took a chance here. It's it's not easy putting yourself out there like that. I'm I'm not, not going to lie. It wasn't until the first, uh, you know, the response to the book has been remarkably positive. So I you know, I saw I saw I, I know James um, from San Diego. Oh, I cool. saw his very nice uh, his very nice endorsement of your book or testimonial, whatever you want right. to call it. Right. It was very nice, and he's a bright guy. I like him a lot, Super and I've always 
of the of the good tennis players he's one of my favorites you know because right. you know these guys and and we grew up with these guys and I don't want to mention any names, but there were plenty in Northern Cal and even a few in Southern Cal, just real assholes, so to speak. And, you know, and, and they turned guys like me who were, um, you know, I wasn't a first round loser, but I was definitely a third round loser. And um, yeah, those guys turned me off, you know? So it's nice when you do meet someone like a James Blake, who seems like a regular, and then, Mike Bryant, you know, there's, there's some nice guys out there. Class acts out there. Yeah. No, but important. there's some real, there's some real dicks out there. Let's face it. And, and they really affect you the most in the juniors, I guess, as they get older, everyone seems to mellow. I'm more friendly with certain people. Uh, right, actually, right. they were at, well, a couple of them were at Stanford. Uh, <laughs> I won't mention their names, but you know, they really walked around like they had a stick up their butt in the juniors. Right. Yeah. I have so many questions. I guess the first one for me, is um like i said didn't mention it much in the book but you know our dads came from the greatest generation right and 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 they were similar in some ways my dad was not as tough as yours probably why i didn't become as good a player as you i think a lot of times you know like an agassi right his dad was a real jerk I, i met agassi in the 12s player and my dad would go are you you haven't played. He always say, if you haven't beaten my son, you haven't played tennis. Right. right, right. <laughs> you know? I got a lot of that kind of that old school parenting. Um, yeah. That Don Rickles, that Don Rickles pat on the back. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's, that's what our dads were growing up. They, they were brought up with that sarcasm that, right. um, you know, where it's cool to be mean to your friends and your son yeah. right. and everyone else. Your dad did it a little bit more, um, yeah, a little more viciously than my dad did it. My dad did it, but he still teased the hell out of me. Yeah. And so I always felt um, like I was super underrated, you know? Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. maybe I was overrated by people in my neighborhood, but underrated by my father. So right. I wonder. Uh, well, so I, I think, I think what you're thinking what, about your dad more than it had me thinking about you. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. He's, he's a complicated person. You know, he, I think. You know, as I've gotten older and reflect back on more on it, you know, when you're in it, it's always complicated emotionally for you. But, you know, listen, he, you know, he, he came from, he's a generation, he's a depression kid, you know, and they generation two, World yeah, War II guy. Yeah. So they never had these opportunities, you know, but he was a passionate person. He loved tennis. He loved all kinds of things. And he never had the, the chances to become to the, that were, you know, our generation had. And so I think when he, when he, you know, he was kind of obsessed with special people too. So he, he wanted me to be something, you know, really, you know, unique and different. And, you know, the generation gap between having enough to eat and having enough strong rackets is, is quite a significant area for them. So it wasn't easy for them to, to, or him particularly to, to be, you know, to be comfortable with the, the, the kind of the comforts that our generation have had. So, so the, to have the opportunities that we had and to not fully engross ourselves in them, you know, a thousand percent always was, it was a tension for him. Cause if he had had those opportunities, you know, and that's where, you know, living vicariously threw me a little bit too much and not in identifying, you know, his, his ego got attached to my performances and somehow, so when I won, he won. And, and when I lost, I, I lost, he lost when I acted up, he acted up. So it got complicated, you know, and, and um, though he was able to provide the opportunities for myself, as did many parents of our generation, you know, he didn't have, he didn't understand how to support me through those situations. Cause it's a lot more than just, you know, paying for lessons and getting kids to tournaments and things like that. It's a, it's a whole process that you, you know, getting your child to believe in themselves. That's what this is about. You've got, you know, everyone can hit forehands and backhands. Can you believe in yourself? You know, and that starts real early 
you know, and, and, you know, he didn't know that part of it. And, uh, you know, we suffered from that. So. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was reading uh, right after I w- read your book this week and I read Dick Gould's new book. Uh, yeah. And I thought to myself, damn, Barry should have played for this guy. <laughs> yeah. We just, I just because... had an exchange with him last night about that. I know I saw it. And I thought <laughs> uh, I would myself, have, I would have aged him. <laughs> no, or maybe he would have tamed you. You know, he would have, he would have done actually, you know, we did, I think he did, uh, we did talk about me coming there, but he didn't have any money for his freshman year. You know, he had, you know, he had all his guys all set and stuff and I would, so I would have had to pay for a whole year there. So, um, no, I mean, knowing what I know now, and I didn't know much back then, you know, going through the process, but, uh, yeah, he's, you know, he was, he got an awful lot out of his players, you know, and they all seem to come out pretty well adjusted and, and, uh, and transitioning, you know, to professional tennis or professional life pretty well. Not all, but but for the most part, not all of them, not all of them. I interviewed a couple and not all of them. Yeah, um, that's, you know, that's not so much dig. I just think that's the tennis grind. And, and you know, it doesn't, you know, it eats a few of us up along the way. And, uh, but no, he, he was a wonderful man. And I always just always admired him, you know, competing against his guys. He just felt like if you be a Stanford guy, you're beating not just a player, but, you know, a legendary coach too. And it was, you know, it's a nice feather. I'll make back. sure, I'll make sure to give him your best in an hour or so. Super. Now, he's been wonderfully supportive of everything that we're doing here. So it's good. Yeah, I met him about 30 years ago. I've, you know, always liked the guy, you know, it's funny, his book reads just like I've always known him. And I haven't known him well, but I've always known two things. He's a hell of a great guy, and one hell of a recruiter. And the book sort of just (laughs) solidified those two things that I already knew. Right. Um, It was funny, too, you know, you, you mentioned some of the uh, I'm going back to the greatest generation. You mentioned some of the things that they could be tough about. You know, my dad would use the words like, you know, lazy. Right. In fact, right. lazy bum. Lazy bum is, a, is that's a word. I, that's a phrase I remember. Yeah. You know what I mean? That yeah. guy's a lazy bum. Right. Uh, but, you know, they also had a lot of what Dick brought to the table. They, they had those integrity talks, loyalty right. talks. Right. Uh, no excuses talks. Right. Right. So, you know, it was quite a different generation. It's, it's unfortunate. I don't see it that much today. You don't hear half the words you used to hear. Right. 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 Which is probably not a bad thing. <laughs> you know, I think one of the things, you know, you know, and this is unscientific, but it's more anecdotal. I think part of becoming a successful player, you know, at the end of the day, we are our own coach and, and of course, you know, and, and it's that inner voice that we're training, you know, that one that's constantly going through our head 24 seven, that voice is the one we have to rely on and how we train, how we develop that voice that comes from a lot of different areas. It comes from culture. It comes from peer groups. It comes from our parents. It comes from our coaches. And, uh, you know, and we we learn through mirroring, you know, let's be, let's be honest, you know, I have a, I have a granddaughter now and I give her the full goo goo gaga and she comes back at me with the goo goo gaga. I feel, you know, I feel like I want to open up a childcare and, you know, I'm, I'm doing some good work there, you know? And so when, when we're saying things to our children and our players and stuff, they, they start saying that stuff to them. So it's really important that we're careful there with those words because um, you know, they can't, they're, they're going to adopt, they're going to mirror our opinions of them and, and take them on themselves a lot. And that's definitely, so when you're getting into abusive language and lazy bum, my dad used to call me yellow, call me a coward, you know, things like oh, yeah. that. Yeah, my you know, dad would use, yeah, say, you know, you know yellow I'm, too. That's right. I'm almost, I'm almost 60 years old. I remember how that stuff made me feel. You know, and I can't, you know, so that doesn't, that doesn't just get, gets lodged in. It's like a little virus in your operating system. It doesn't go away that easy. Once you get kind of projected onto you, you know, that you're an inferior, that you suck, that you're lazy, that you're a failure, that you are these things. And, and, and people are, you know, the parents are just saying this out of frustration and they're not in their best 
place, but that doesn't mean that you can't take those words back. They're really, they're complicated, you know, and we're young people trying to navigate a very complicated sport. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's not, you got to, so we got to be careful there. It's not, it's not determinant in how we're going to do, but it can be counterproductive in many ways. So that's part of, you know, I'm trying to illustrate that point now where, you know, parents, as they work with their kids here, it's just crucial to, to, to have enough discipline of your own emotional responses to, to be careful what you say to kids at, at certain times. So there's a time to put your, your parent hat on, say, hey, listen, I'm going to tell you what I saw the other day when they're ready for it, but not right when they're walking off the court or in the car. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, right, right, right. Yeah. You know, I, I read a book and did a podcast about two weeks ago. Yeah, about two weeks ago with a guy named Frank Giampaolo. You know yes, him? Yes, Frank, sure. Did you read his book? Because you might I have find not. it interesting. No, he, he's got a few of them out there. I have not. Uh, we I've actually talked to Frank about coordinating some stuff together, but I have not. Good uh, because he's very. He's got the same thoughts. He wrote a book called The Tennis Parent Bible. Right. And right. I read it, and, uh, and then we chatted for quite a while, and um, you know, very interesting. A lot of the same stuff that we're we're coming up with here. Um, right, right. It's, you know, it's difficult. You know, I, I, I use this analogy. We just went, you know, we're here in Nashville. We went to a Titans game the other day and the first game of the season, a guy missed a field goal at the buzzer to, to win the game. And, you know, oh, yeah, I the, saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For 40, you know, for 45 seconds, the stuff that I was saying about that poor guy, you know, it, you know, I just said four hours here with, you know, we're watching this game. Come on, everybody can make, you know, it just, it's just unbelievable what came out of my mouth. Now, of course, if he had made the kick, I'd have probably bought his Jersey. So, so we're dealing with this kind of, this, this, the agony, you know, the thrill of victory and agony defeat all hanging on a moment here. And in tennis, it's no different. So I, I get, you know, listen, parent, tennis is hard. Parenting is hard. Tennis parenting is extremely difficult. So learning how not to, to, you know, you're going to identify with your child when your child's playing a part of you is playing too. And it's just so important to, be, to understand that terrain. I mean, that's really, you know, tennis is already stressful enough. Your child needs to feel safe when this doesn't go, it's not going to go their way frequently. And, and, and for odd reasons, whether it's choking or tanking or whatever's going on out there, uh, or just not rising to the occasion. And uh, it's so super important that we keep them, you know, that, that we, we're careful there in that, in that space, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, it's just, it's funny. I don't think I can do this in one, uh, in one hour. Uh, hey, listen, I'm more than happy to, more than happy to come good. on back, my friend. Good, yeah, because it, this is, this is getting personal. You know, I told <laughs> your player, it's really funny reading your book though. I always thought you guys, and I coached guys like Sam Query and I, yeah. Steve, I've, I've had a little bit of luck uh, coaching much more than I did playing. Right. And, um, and um, so I've always rubbed elbows with, with you, you know, you guys, I've always rubbed elbow, whether it was John Paley, Martin, right. Sam, Stevie Johnson, right. Steve Foreman, a, a lot of, a lot of Coco Vanderway, a lot of good players I've influenced somehow, right. um, whether they used my boards or whether I gave them lessons, but I was always involved, Guy Fritz, Taylor. Sure. Um, it's amazing when I read some of your, like I said, I'm not going to go over the stories today because someone just read the book and they'll see some great, exciting matches and some tanking and some choking and some huge comeback, some huge comeback victories. Unbelievable. You know, you. it's like I was playing them. That's how well it read. But it's amazing how even at your level, which is what I was always aspiring to be, you know, I was always you know, when I was ranked in the 70s and national in my, in my New England, I got to Kalamazoo. So, you know, you're top six right. or something, I think right, right. nationally, I was always 
you know, after like they ranked 60 some odd people, then it said alphabetically. Alphabetically, honorable mention. And I was, and I, that's right. And I was uh, ranked alphabetically from 62 to 300 or whatever. Right, right, right. Thank God. But my name was Brody. So, so I was up, always up like, at the top, right? I was up at the top. So I would sort of, I think at 17, I think I was telling people I was 84 because I was right at the top. Right. You know? <laughs> but it's amazing how your stories don't differ that much from mine. I would have thought they'd be so different being at a higher level, you know, a, a full step up that, but it's not. The nerves are the same. The, the, wanting to, the, the wanting to please your dad or not get screamed at on the way home right. and, the, and, and all that stuff. And even the thoughts of cheating and the temper tantrum. It's amazing to me because I always looked at you guys um, like growing up. I looked at guys like Finkelstein and and who else? You, you know, the old timer. I'm older than you. So but you might remember some of those guys. Um, Manson. Remember Manson? Bruce Manson, right. And I just thought they had a different life. I'm like, well, life's easy for them because they play naturally. They don't have to think about these other things. But it seems like even at the highest level, you're still thinking like the guy in the second round. Well, I think we're all, you know, we, we talked briefly about this. You know, there's this kind of pendulum between unshakable belief and, and crippling doubt. And depending on where you are and your confidence, if you're on a good run or you're on a losing streak, it, it's going to, it can fly around. And, uh, you know, and what, where you're, how you're feeling in the moment, hitting that shot in that, on that particular point, you know, one that you've probably missed thousands of times and made thousands of times, the thoughts that come forward at that moment are going to be determinant to your success or failure. So we all, it's, a, this is the impossible sport. You know, it's, it, you can't play it perfectly. It's the most, if you're a perfectionist trying to play this possible, this sport that's impossible to perfect, there's always going to be doubt. Now, how do you, push the doubt back? Can you just allow yourself to just kind of kind of turn the head off and be able to play? And, and, and for the be better part, most of the time we are able to, but everyone comes up to that point where we have a little bit of doubt. And it seems that the guys who are, who are consistently more successful, they weren't necessarily better players, but they would just be able to eke out those closer matches. They just didn't panic as much. They, they seem to be able to stay a little calmer in the storm, they, it's not that they were out, you know, hitting, you know, ended up on Sports Center hitting the shot of the day or anything. They just didn't, they just didn't get, they just didn't crack. They were able to kind of stay a little more resolute in in the in the moment, and, and that's where you know that's where the inner voice training. That's where the I think a lot of it has to do with being very successful when you're young, getting that confidence, that building up. You know, I got beat up for many years when I was 10, 12, 14. I, so it kind of gets in your head that you're just not as good as these guys. You know, especially if you're a draw watcher and you're paying attention to the results and you're like, oh, my God, he won the Orange Bowl. And, you know, these guys are you can build them into things that they're not. And and uh, so part of that is just, you know, look, how do you come into your belief? When I actually start getting really good, I still my belief in myself didn't wasn't equal to my abilities. I still I was playing way better than I thought it was. At some point, I thought this whole thing was just going to wear off you know, and, and uh, go back to my old messy self. But so it is, it is a challenge, you know, it's, uh, but you know, everyone's battling out there and you yeah. know, the same emotions and yeah, we, we don't have, a, the great guys don't have a monopoly on it. <laughs> no, no, uh, you know, and um, I was even thinking as you were speaking, you know, I was coaching a kid, Steve Foreman, you know him? I do not know. Yeah, he's a younger guy. He was one in the country, um, you know, 12s, 14s, 16s. Uh, he got to the finals of Kalamazoo once or twice. Um, I know once. I don't think he played it. His second year of the 18s, I don't think he played it. First year, he got to the finals. So he was a good player, right? Played one for uh, Virginia, uh, Wake Forest, Wake Forest. 
You know, when we went to the Orange Bowl in 12s, he uh, lost in the finals of the backdraw. And the guy who won the tournament, uh, you know, four years later, we're in the 16s back at the Orange Bowl. I said to Steve, because I'm still, I coached him all the way through. And I said, hey, where's that guy? You know, he was a huge guy. He won the 12s. Right. Oh, he says, oh, he doesn't play anymore. And, you know, so you're right. We build these guys into gods when we're 12 and 13 years old. And it's so funny. And and I remember a guy, um, you you won't remember. He's too old for you, I think. Um, You remember Howie Schoenfeld? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. You do? Oh, yeah. It's a tragic story, but yeah. It's a very sad story. And I started thinking of all the people I knew growing. I grew up with him. Right. Um, you know, he would win the New England indoors when I would lose in the quarters. Right. So I, I knew him and Mitch Finkelstein and all those guys. But Howie always kind of, I've never forgotten Howie because that was the first, um, you know, unfortunate death that I had um, come in. Con- you know, I was only 17 when I heard about my fellow 17 year old uh, committing suicide. And I, I just thought, why you know i mean if i were him you know he always were if i were him i would just be loving life you know everything's perfect how much do you credit because i didn't pick it up in the book the bipolar stuff i really picked up more of what i kind of grew up with with pales and martine and all those guys success came to be friggin' easy and and bud and pot was too easy to get Right. And it was sexy, you know, all the, I, I played the, La, you remember the La Costa pro pro celebrity sure, tournament. Sure, sure. I played that a twice, two years in a row. I played once with Mel Brooks right. and uh, another time with Ralph from Ralph's remember right, Ralph's. Right, right. <laughs> so anyway, and everybody was there, right. Vinny and Nils and, and right. Farah and everyone's there. And it's just, it just seemed like too easy of a time. I didn't really pick up the bipolar. I just picked up the typical, <clears throat> He's a great player. He's got all the talent in the world. So why not fuck around and have a good time? Yeah, and no, unfortunately. I was, I was always kind of jealous, envious of you guys, because I was, I, I didn't really screw around like that. You did it in high school. So you do, you you were an early yeah, developer. I, I was a late I was 14, yeah. I think a I lot a of, dude. I think we're going to find out when all is said and done here. I mean, we're just on the kind of the, the, the cutting edge of a, of a public conversation about mental health and so forth. A lot of substance abuse, a lot of alcoholism, there is an underlying driving force. And uh, whether it's a mood disorder or an anxiety disorder, whatever it may be. Um, certainly in my case, you know, what I, what I, you know, what's hard with your, with your mind, you know, I kind of bring this up in the book where we have kind of a public life, a private life and kind of a secret life, you know, and, and, uh, public lives are what everybody knows of us, our private lives, our family, and so forth. But the secret lives are that you can have secret behaviors. And, you know, if you're a gambler or whatever, you have things, you know, but eventually they come out to lie. You can't, you know, if you're eating disorders, things like that. But if you have secret thoughts, that's different because, you you know, they're yours. And the challenge is you have nothing really to compare them to. You know, if I'm if I'm overeating and I'm getting heavy, I can see everyone's not eating that way. It's easy to see that I'm out of out of line here a little bit. But when you're thinking the way I was thinking back then, and it wasn't so much constant, it was, it was constant 
the speed of thought was 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 un, was un, was concerning and that's where drugs and alcohol really helped me slow me down but but in my matches you know and i remember i was playing todd witzkin in a, in a match at uh, you always played todd witzkin i just hear he was like a <laughs> magnet every time i get a draw there he, he'd be right next to me man but you know but i just remember how my how fast my brain was going at like seven all in the third set and and you know and just it was just redlining the whole time and i'm just and it finally hit me i said like there's just no way these other guys, other guys are having that same experience. They just can't be because, you know, there's some, I mean, I'm, I'm winning in spite of myself and these guys are somehow able to stay pretty cool through the whole process. So, so that, that was the first time it really hit me that, Hey, this is, this can't be, this isn't normal. There can't be normal, but you don't, you know, it's not like, so I was 16, 17 years old. I wasn't about to go talk to anybody about this. Like my head is just going, you know, if I told you what was, what I was going through my mind in these matches, you know, you, you, you would commit me. You know, so I wasn't about to tell anybody. It was, it was full of shame about the whole thing. And then as I got into my 20s, you know, then I started really starting to cycle a lot. The depressions were the real tell. You know, that's when, you know, you literally just can't move for a couple of days. You're just sitting there staring at the wall. And that, that's, you know, and that stuff you kind of keep to yourself because you're just trying to, you're trying to figure it out yourself. Like, what's going on with me here? And then that cycling of just going up and down and up and down and, and uh, you know, and just being just, you know, it's, you can start, you, you, you get a sense that something's not right, that other people aren't experiencing the world as you are. And, um, and it fuels the behavior. And that, so that when I did get my, finally get my diagnosis at 37, you know, I was like, whoa, okay, thank God. Okay, at least there's some defining, there's some, now I know why maybe some of the things were happening. It wasn't the solution. At least, at least I had an explanation. I didn't have the exact solution yet. That was going to take some time. But uh, yeah, it was, you know, so it's, it's complicated, you know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You're probably right. I, it, like I said, I, I always thought you guys, and I always keep saying you guys, let's just say top 10 guys. Um, I thought you guys all played unconsciously. <laughs> you know, sometimes we and sometimes we did, you know, I mean, you know, as they say, you're playing out of your mind. I don't yeah, think they say it, they don't say they don't use that term anymore. But that was a big turn or in the zone. Right. But I always thought you zone. guys played out of your minds. And veritably unconsciously where I was always thinking like I was the kind of guy I'd start the match a little like my guy Stevie <sighs> does sometimes bugs me, but I would start the match hitting out on my backhand. Right. And if I miss two backhands, I'd be chipping right. the rest right. of the match kind of like right. Stevie does these days, right. you know, right. he'll start the match with two. And then by the end of the first set, he's chipping and he doesn't go back to a two-hander, right. um, which always really blew my mind because Stevie was, he was definitely up there with you guys. I mean, he was right, maybe the greatest athlete, college, yeah. maybe the greatest college player of all time. But yeah, it always bugged me uh, about that because he had a good backhand. He just right. didn't believe in it, but right. I couldn't understand it. I understood how I couldn't believe in mine because I was just Jack. Right. Right. So, but that's what I mean. I would always go to the chip and I would see you guys on big points like P Pales or Graham or any of those guys, you guys would swing away. You'd go for the passing shot where I'd go for the lob. Um, you know what well, I mean? Listen, we, pra we practiced an awful lot. I mean, I, I think, you know, what gets lost, you know, we played an awful lot of tennis and, and, you know, the, the art of this is to somehow take your, the freedom of your practice play and then just bring that into your match play. And then just have that, you know, practice like you play, play practice with intensity. And, uh, you know, we played an un unbelievable number of sets back then. So we just jumping right into a tournament that was just like practice. You know, we were so used to going forward on big points and so forth. Now, obviously when things got tight and you know, there'd be moments of, of, you know, tension in the matches where it wouldn't be so easy to, to let it fly. Um, you know, because when you get close to winning, it's just the human side of it. But, um, you know, we, we definitely practiced 
like we played and we're playing each other. So we're familiar with each other. You know, it was just, a, it was a real, it was a little simpler back then. We were playing the same guys, same tournaments, Southern California, you know, you're playing guys, same guys four or five times in a year. So you just get, you get comfortable with them, you know, and uh, so you, you've got, you've got a swing, you got a fighter's chance every time. So you're going to go out and just have, you had to bring your best game because these guys could all play. You know, you weren't going to be able to kind of, you know, nurse your way through a match against with these guys. So you had to bring your, you know, just bring some offense and, and go for it, you know, because the game was a little bit more aggressive back then, I think, too. I mean, there was a lot more attacking, you know what I'm saying? So the courts Everyone were, tried yeah. Everyone tried yeah, it's tough now. The courts are slow. The guys have heavy spin. The, the strings are different. I mean, it's just a different game. So, you know, the court, our day was, you know, kind of the corner to corner and cutting things off and taking it early. So it was a little bit different. These guys are, you know, they're playing in a, you know, almost a different sport nowadays. So it's, it's almost a different sport with yeah. different sticks. I mean, everything. Yeah, so it's, it's entirely. Yeah. So they're just different. Yeah. You know, they're having, they, they have to play a different style there. So, um, but uh, yeah, you know, I, we all have belief. It's just that there comes a certain point where you, where you just, where you get a little fragile and, and uh, you know, we just try to, you know, the more we just, you try to train that out of you as best you can. And, and uh, you know, it's just not that easy. Yeah. You know, I was wondering what you're going to look like. Cause I, like I said, I never met you in person, um, but reading your book, like I said, when people read your book, they're going to feel like they get to know you pretty damn well. Um, I hope so. <laughs> But one of the one of my favorite I wrote a few of my favorite lines, uh, one of my favorite lines in the book, really, that that really rung true was uh, tennis, the oscillation between unshakable belief and crippling doubt. And I think uh, when people I don't know, somehow, I don't know if you remember writing that sentence, but I, I read through your book like I do any book. Uh, I'm a kind of a big reader and. But boy, I had to stop and read that one two or three times and just thought to myself, wow, that encompasses a whole hell of a chapter right there. Um, That's a worthy conversation. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is. I mean, we could spend an hour talking just about that alone. Um, But it's amazing to me, like I said, and I think this is something people are going to want to hear because not everyone is at the top. I would say most of us are the grinders. Most of us are the journeymen. Right. And uh, there's only two guys in the finals. You and usually the same two guys. Ask Roger and Ra- ask Roger and Rafa, you know, and jo- and Djokovic. Exactly. It's always the same. It's always the same couple people, whether it's Whitlinger or uh, Sandy Mayer or whatever. Uh, Roscoe. It was always the same couple of guys at the top. But it really is amazing to me how the thought process is still pretty similar at all levels, and I think people are going to want to know that uh, because I think most. Tennis players think that they're unique. Yeah. I mean, I, I had this conversation with a college tennis friend of mine where, you know, back in the day when we're, you know, you play the, you know, they had the six singles matches going on and everybody, when you, you always knew where your team was, you know, your, whether your team was close to getting that fifth win and stuff and whether your match was going to count or not. And, right. And, of course. Of course. Right, single, all you, need, you needed five. You just needed five. And there's not a single guy five. out there who will tell you with a straight face that they weren't praying that the guy would, would finish to close the match out before them because they didn't want to be the one having to play the deciding match. Because, I mean, I've been be- I've been in the, I've been that ninth match. Oh, so yeah, I know. Yeah, it's yeah. gnarly. So, so, it's gnarly. So, so, you know, I think what, one of the things we kind of overlook in this sport is, is just acknowledging how stressful it is. It's not all that fun do when you're in the middle of that stuff. It's, it's a real love hate. It's a real beast. It's, it yeah. is, it's a, talk about, you want to use a rolling stones. It's, it's total beast of burden. It's a beast of burden. Yeah. It's and so, so and there's points out there where, you know, I think, you know, when we're under sustained stress for a long time, so the, what all people really want is that they want the stress to be over with. 
That's right. Before. Yeah. So you, I don't get whether, whether you're playing a tennis match or whether you're watching a scary movie or whatever it is you're watching that's got you on edge, you can only stay stressed for so long. You need that, that relief. So either that's where a lot of tanking comes in or you get just people like, I just can't take this anymore. I want it over. Right. I don't care. That's why so many happen. people quit tennis after college. Exactly. And most of the guys who play the seniors, right? I got guys trying to push me to play men's 65 yeah, really no. hard. And I'm not, in, I'm just not into it because. I don't fucking deal with it again. I don't want to feel like that anymore. I don't want to yeah, deal with it again. I don't and, want to feel and, like but, but all these guys that play in the 60s and the 50s yeah. and the 70s, yeah. they're all guys that didn't play high school or juniors or, or they, college. Yeah. And so they've got this, 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 you know, this rambunctious, oh, let's right. go. I'm, you know, I'm going to jump rope. I'm going to do it. And I'm like, well, shit, I, you know, most of us, when you finish college, you were like, oh, thank God that ride is over. Now you let's have some, your- let's have some fun. Exactly. You get it. We get it out of our system when we're younger. And, uh, you know, but I mean, I, I marvel. We, just, we were just up in Boston watching the 85 Nationals. And these guys are fist pumping and, you know, eight all in the tiebreaker. They're 80, 85 years old. They're just so really? They're just built different, man. They were just, they were so into it. You know? Like, this is awesome. <laughs> That's classic. Is there I any mean, good tennis? Is there oh, I, I'm Jack. I have to tell you, they played a match tiebreaker. Uh, where both guys had three match points to win the gold ball. There had to be, I think it ended up 13, 11. There had to be 20 winners hit in this thing. These guys were spectacular really? at down the, down really? the oh, amazing, amazing. And they're 85 years old on a grass court. Hit and drop. Ooh, shot like winners. Leander Pays, could they just hit any spot they, were, they wanted? They were spectacular. I, I can't, I can't say enough of just the level of play under the gun, saving match points with just winners. I mean, it was just amazing. I mean, they're not hitting the ball very hard, but they're just, you know, they're 85, but it was just, can, can they move still? They, they know how to get in the right spot. They got to balls that you just like, there's no way he's getting to that. <laughs> That's so, but so, so the, you know, so, so for some of us, the war is over and we put our weapons down a long time ago. We came out of the bush. So some people are just, just wired differently. They need that, that that's their life force. And, and uh, you know, see for me, it was just, it was all about college for me. I just wanted to get some money to go to yeah. college and go to a good college. I went to Chapel right. Hill and then went to UCSD. Right. Right. And then when I went to UCSD, that's when I met all my uh, SoCal yeah. friends right. and Chapel Hill was a whole different, animal in fact the south is so different than the west yeah <laughs> it's so different playing in the south than in the west yeah uh just a different mentality plus you're not too close to hollywood and all that stuff you know it's funny i taught the guys i got to know well at ucla they were a little bit older than me I actually did regret going to ucla just because of the trappings of la and uh it's just super hard to you know call you know call it a night at 9 30 and you know when you have to get you know get up six train when all of that activity is going on. It's just, it's just a chance. It's just adds another challenge that you don't really need. You know, you're, you need to be able to stay laser focused and, and, you know, do some, you know, you got to sacrifice a lot to make it in this game, you know, and that's part of it and put yourself in West LA in the eighties, you're, you know, it's just, yeah, I don't know how much, uh, it's a temptation of, of that lifestyle is just to, you know, especially when you're a world-class tennis player, you know, it's, uh, it hit me it, and I, I wasn't world-class, but it hit me hard too. It was just too much to handle. I mean, for starters, it was a sexier sport. All the celebs were yeah. playing it. I mean, when you watch Columbo, you know, right. 10% right. of them was about the tennis pro who right. made it with right. this chick right. and, then right. gets, and then he gets murdered by the husband. You right. know what I mean? <laughs> and, that, and, that, and that happens. <laughs> well, um. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. And, and you had the celebs. I mentioned Farah before. I met her yeah. many times. Super nice lady, by the way. Right. People don't even know. I mean, she, she was one of the sweetest gals. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. such a shame. She's another shame. 
because she got caught up in the Hollywood stuff. I mean, she was a Hollywood gal, Charlie's right. Angels and all, but uh, I met her through Vinny and, and Martine and, and right. uh, that whole scene. But um, yeah, it was such a different time. It was a sexier yeah. sport. It was a sexier sport. Everybody was playing it. You know, I mean, Everyone house, was playing it. I mean, you built a house, golf you was nothing. It. Golf was nothing. Yeah, it was, it was, it was definitely a second sister. Yeah. But I mean, you know, you built a nice house, you put a court in. I mean, it was just what people were doing. You know, it was, the, listen, we grew up in the, in the tennis boom. The seventies were a unique time. And, you know, obviously tennis participation numbers will always be somewhat in decline from the peak of that. But if, you know, we came, we came out here in Southern California, in 1978. I mean, they were popping up 20 court clubs, West ends, you know, Rolling Hills Plaza, South end. I mean, they were just dropping these, you know, it was a big, it was big business back then and they all didn't survive but boy oh boy you go a couple miles and there was another 20 court facility coming up you know it's crazy yeah and now they're tearing courts down or putting a pickleball in, in their place yeah. and I'm, I'm not even we're not going to talk that's the only no. time we're going to say that word okay. um but uh it's just not it's just not for me personally no. but um okay. yeah but i mean places like uh, where was it hotel del coronado yeah yeah remember they used to have ben press was there god rest his soul right, nice right, guy right. um really nice guy actually um but yeah they had like 20 courts and now awesome. they have and now they have two right right yeah that was the problem with tennis you know it just it became such a big boom but then people started realizing i think that between the hours of 11 and 3 the real estate is being wasted you made more money off a parking lot or a laundromat. You know, and you, are you really going to take 7,200 square feet and have two 12-year-olds spend two hours out there? Is that the best use of your of your scarce land? I mean, it doesn't, you know, plus, right. listen, tennis, let's be fair. Tennis is hard. Tennis is very hard to learn. You know, if you don't have a, you know, I just started with my wife a couple of years ago during COVID. She never hit a ball before, you know, and then she, you know, I created a monster. I mean, she's into it now, but, you know, she, there's no way it's, you know, it's someone who, you know, as an adult, who's going to be able to just pick the game up without a coach, unless you've got a boatload of money, you know, it's just a very hard game to learn, you know, for, you got to be terrible for a couple of years there before you can even get to the point where you can, can play the game. So, so that, you know, when you're comparing it or competing with other sports, which are much simpler to, you know, we'll say pickleball one more time. I mean, it's one of the attractions of it. It's just, you can, you know, it's glorified. It's easy, pickleball. Yeah. yeah. You can be the barrier to entry is very low. So, you know, so sport tennis is always going to struggle a little bit in that in sense. I mean, if the people who gravitate to tennis either have a parent or, you know, you've got some form of kind of lineage there. And, and unfortunately, there's enough of us out there keeping it going. But, uh, you know, it, it's it's, you know, it's. Well, you know, I'll, I'll have a shameless plug here. It is difficult to learn. But did you take a look by any chance? I did. I did. And so I think I, I think, um, you know, I. Another part about California is the whack jobs out here. Um, I'm not here anymore. I just moved, but I still feel like I live there. Um, I got into this guy, Rudolf Steiner, uh, Anthroposophical Society. And that was, that's what I mean. We're, there's a lot of weird shit out in the West Coast. So, and this was up in San Francisco, of course. And I went to the college there to study this guy. And I learned about the figure eight in the hips, not in the hips, but in mathematics. He was a mathematician. And I learned about this and I was watching Agassi at the time. I'm, I'm like slow motion. I, I said, oh, he makes a figure eight in his hips. And then I started noticing, oh, all the players that were a notch ahead of me. I always rotated my body. I thought pivoting was enough. But no, there's this, this to me, a secret sauce is this small figure eight in the hips. That's what all the great athletes seem to do. Right. So then I in, uh, invented those swivels and all right. that. So I think it does... Uh, 
I will agree. It's hard to learn, but I, I think it could be easier. I mean, I'll tell you no, one thing. No. You put someone on those two swivels and you drop, you feed them a few balls right. and they, you tell them to swivel their feet, right. you'll, they'll improve so much faster, which is, I mean, one of my goals is to try and save the game because right. I've been watching tennis go down since 1979. Right, right. Right. So I, I think there are easier ways to play other no, than I, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. You know, early you know, preparation. Kind of, kind of the wild, wild west out there. We're letting everybody kind of do their own thing and and you know That's right. and, and invariably you're gonna get some uh some some will be better than others. Yeah. <laughs> well it's true. Uh, there was like three of us in San Diego that had all the players. Right. And there was like six of us in SoCal right. that had all the players, and that's it. And then the other you know, 4,500 coaches you never heard of, but uh, who was it? Woody Blocker. I used to compete yeah. against him. Angel Lopez. I used Angel, to Angel's a good friend of mine. Yeah. Oh yeah. Angel, his kid, my kid would play doubles together. So we'd be on the same side or we'd be opposing each other because they'd play right, each right. other in the finals. So I bumped into Angel a lot. And, right. but like I said, there was like a half a dozen of us who had all the kids. Right. And then everyone else was grinding and hustling. Right. Um, right. Right. Kind of reminded me of the juniors a little. I was the grinder in the juniors, but lucky for me, coaching seemed to be my thing. Well, good, good. I'm, be more, I'm a better facilitator than I am uh, a doer, I guess. <laughs> so let me ask you something. Yes. Why music? I'm a musician, by the way. I play guitar and I've played right. in bands since I was 13 years old. So I have to know, I can't get there from here. I play that by R.E.M. And I'm like, this guy's totally, does he play guitar? And I'm I wondering. Play, no, I, it's fascinating. I probably, uh, I probably deserve an award. I, there's, I probably know more about music for not being able to play a single note of any. You don't any, play anything. No, I don't I'm play it. Just have an ear for it. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Can you sing a lick? I can't sing a lick and nor will I even try. No, I just, uh, you know, I, there's something about the, uh, you know, there's a, there's a tone to the dead. There's a tone to fish. There's a tone to, kind of ambient music and, and so I just got into you know there was a fascination with uh just the bands and the venues and the in the rooms and just the whole scene and then once I got into the dead scene you know in the 80s and stuff I just felt at home I said wow these are these are my people you know and, yeah. and they, they I've always felt they had uh they had something to teach me you know these people seemed to have something I didn't have and uh it was a freedom of spirit and and, and nature and and uh and uh, just, you know, there's something about it that was enormously attractive to me. And just, you know, before I knew it, I was, you know, I oh, started yeah. going and I haven't stopped. I took uh, my wife, I took my wife to see fish some years ago and she, she looked over at me. She goes, you know, do you ever hope you don't spend nights alone wondering why you're single taking your dates to this music? <laughs> <laughs> I go, okay, touche. Well, my, my wife will go see Dave Mason. She'll see people yeah. like that. She will not see anything close to the dead. She's like, yeah. well, they just go on these rambling things for yeah, like 10 yeah. minutes. It's and not for everyone. Yeah, it's, it's not, not for everyone. everyone. <laughs> so it, but there are 60 uh, Rudolf Steiner colleges throughout the world. So he's a very interesting guy. And he talks about how when you pluck a guitar string, it moves in a figure eight. Right. And the fastest animal in the world is the hummingbird. And it's because it's the only bird whose wings move in a figure eight. So I got into this figure eight and then started watching Agassiz. Right. But um, yeah, um, Galway, you said that was a big deal. Because to me, I, I read the book several times and it helped me for a little while. Yeah. And then yeah. so it sort of faded away. Talk about not fade away. It sort of faded away right. and, and became um, more fluff. And, and then what I did with my stuff with this, Rud not my stuff, Rudolf Steiner stuff was try to 
take the inner game and, and and turn it into the outer game. So, you know, right. it wasn't so much about relaxing, but if you understand that the figure eight is the first move you make as a baby rolling over right. in your crib or crawling right, right. and the figure eight is inherently in you, right. now you can really get into that inner game because you have, you understand the movement. So yeah, that was I, my only issue with Galway. I, I, it became a little fluffy for me. It's, I, I think the language is so much, op somewhat opaque. I mean, the concepts are not, uh, they're kind of, kind of Eastern, but they're not anecdotal enough. I mean, it's almost like it was reading a, almost like a philosophy book in many or a psychology book, but I mean, I think parts of what, of his analysis is pretty accurate in the sense of there is a, particularly when you get into the interference part, we're, we're all trying to quell the interference, um, we can never do it perfectly, but it is something that will always take away from performance. Um, and I just when I when I hit me when I you know I think I was struggling at that time, and I just I, mean, I went to my high school library and, and was trying to find something on sports and psychology, and it was the book that they had. And I just I remember opening to a random page, and it just taught me you know it was the simple drill: just try to keep your mind quiet, which was exactly the opposite of everything that was happening for me when I was competing. And um, you know it just it just had a noticeably positive effect in the sense that it just allowed me to focus much, much easier. It kept me significantly calmer. You know, I wasn't, wasn't as reactive. I could kind of let things just kind of pass by. So, but it takes, you know, like there's a famous quote from Thoreau. If you want to create a path in, in the, in the field, you have to walk that path over and over and over and over again to get it to harden and, and be a path. And it's no different with thinking. If you want certain thoughts to, to permeate your daily thinking and you're your, particularly in tennis, your match play, you've got to think those thoughts over and over and over again. So kind of what you said, you know, we did a little bit and then we kind of fade out of it. I think if you can incorporate it as a practice, you know, a mindfulness practice, um, you know, through consistent, you know, practice like meditating and doing it often and, and regularly. I did all um, that stuff. Yep. Yeah. It, you know, and listen, it, it's hard. I and mean, listen, we're in the Western world and pace is fast and, and things are going, you know, so it's not that easy to to have that stuff by your side. I, I come back to it as often as I can, you know, and it does help me in my day to day life and, and, and keeping me centered and, and grounded. But um, as a tennis player, I mean, I've used it frequently with other players, you know, especially with my more panicky players, the ones that are just so reactive to stuff. You've got to be able to you know, focus on one thing, whether it's the ball or your breathing or whatever it is. Um, and, and get your mind to quiet and allow your allow your body to do what you've trained it to do. You know, and I think that's really where a lot of his uh, success came from. You know, why well, I, I think it was so apropos for the time. Yeah, I, I yeah. mean, let's face it. His yeah. book was like his book was like smoking a joint. Basically, it was exactly. It was, it was a lot of sixty. It was a lot of sixties, seventies. Kind of, yeah. It was kind of new age before new age was a thing, and it was, but it was different. But it also was applicable, and it's still, you know, listen. There's a lot yeah. of the. You know, you take five or 10, you'd probably take 10 super thoughts out of there and, and apply them today and without any, you know, and you'll have a lot of adherence today. There's a lot of, it, it's, it's, it's held up over time, I think. Yeah. I'll, and I'll bet you read some of the others I read back then. I, I wasn't even thinking, this wasn't even in my notes, but I remember reading uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Absolutely. Robert Persig, sure. That's right. And uh, The Peaceful Warrior. Sure. sure. And what was the other? Oh, Jonathan Livingston Siegel. Remember that one? Sure, sure. No, I mean, I was a big Persig fan. And, you know, I mean, yeah, I, like, him, I even I even took TM back in the uh, late 70s. I use I use Persig even today where I, I talk to kids, you know, and we were just kind of on this conversation where if you the if you say you want to be a professional tennis player and say, you know, yeah, what do you think of when you think professional tennis player? 
and most people think romantically, they'll think, oh, travel and prize and fame and fortune and, you know, celebrity. And then the classical thinker will think, okay, it's a, it's nonstop, it's sacrifice, it's pain, it's losing, it's, it's travel, it's, it, you know, it's constant, you know, on the road, it's a grind. So you have this romantic thinker and the classical thinker, which is what he, you know, kind of the, the cross-country motorcycle analogy that he brings it what do you think about on a long road trip right you're thinking is it beautiful views or is it you're gonna have a sore ass and a, and a you know bugs in your face all the time so it depends on what kind of mind you have do you have a classical mind or a romantic mind you know and uh so i'm pretty sure i had a romantic one yeah and, and we all we think we all have a, it's good to have a little bit of both you know you want to be you know you don't want to be you got to be realistic about your things you know i mean i'll give you a perfect example like even when when like when fish will announce a tour my head immediately goes let's go we're going for a week and we're going here here and here that's my romantic you know get my mania on kind of side then the classical side will come in so, all right wait a minute time out you know you got a job you got a family you, you know maybe we'll watch this one from the couch you know <laughs> yeah, so. I, I, yeah that's a really good analogy uh that's funny i uh huh yeah people don't realize i played the watch tour you remember that one down in florida yeah yeah, yeah. so for guys like me you know um, me and these two guys i met um you know we stayed in uh, right. one bedroom hotel and people were sleeping on the floor and um you know i would generally lose in the second round third round to someone who didn't speak English. Right, right. And, right, right. Uh, and, and, and that was the realistic part. And right, I only could right. take it about six months and then I was done. I said, okay. Right, right. And then lucky for me, my coaching, uh, being in SoCal, you know, a few people right, come your right. way and I was a good enough coach to keep them until my Steiner days. And then my Steiner days really put me in a whole new level because right. it was really fascinating stuff. I think you, of all people, I, maybe I'll send you a couple links of some books. Okay. I, I think you would dig this guy, Rudolf Steiner. You'd know who he is too. He invented bio, biodynamic farming. Okay. He invented the Waldorf schools. He started the Waldorf schools. Okay. You know, he did all that panurythmia where you stand I'm and you all, move. That's I've all. Got room, always got room for another eccentric genius out there. So. Yes. <laughs> He's a Renaissance man. All that stuff cool. is Steiner. Okay. Um, even the dulcimer, he invented the, I believe he, he created the dulcimer, uh, which okay. is what Joni, that's what Joni Mitchell used to play. Sure. sure. Um, so he's quite a guy. He's quite a guy. Cool. Um, yeah. I'll send you some of his stuff. I think you would just be blown away. Absolutely. Sure. He's like Galway on steroids. I mean, he takes all that fluffy stuff and puts some rationale behind it. You know, how do you achieve, how do you look like a tree blowing in the wind? Right, and, right, right, the, right. and the branches make that big figure eight. How is that done? And he, he right, gets right. down to brass tacks. That's cool. And That's um, cool. might even help you with your tennis uh, coaching because this guy really changed. He changed my world and he's been dead for a hundred years. Okay. Now it's been an hour, but I'd love awesome. to do it again sometime if you're into Absolutely. it, because yeah, I have, yeah. I have another dozen questions to ask you. Okay. No, let's do it. Yeah. Let's get another time. In, uh, and I totally okay. appreciate you having me on. Um, and yeah, it's been real, real good. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll be texting you. Okay, man. Appreciate you. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Thanks, Thanks again. Buddy. Appreciate it.